Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Gotham, and welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming macro investor Diego Parilla, the best-selling author of The Energy World is Flat and The Anti-Bubbles. In his day-to-day, he's the managing partner and portfolio manager at Quadriga Asset Managers, with a focus on global macro volatility and tail risk. Diego is a really well-versed individual who's also an engineer and economist, which is incredible. In addition, he's also had previous roles managing risk and global teams in prestigious investment banks such as JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Merrill Lynch. We have a great conversation, deconstruction opportunities from the end of peak oil. What is an anti-bubble and a bubble, and how to take advantage of anti-bubbles, and also gold's perfect storm. Enjoy. Hi, Diego. Good to have you on the podcast. Hi, Ed. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Um, you're in Madrid, Spain. Is that right? That's correct. How's it? the weather? Pretty good there now. Everything's sort of heating up, at least in the UK. It's, it's got hot again, finally. Yeah, it's getting very hot here. So <laughs> summer's approaching, but, uh, <laughs> but beautiful. Better, better, better hotter than colder, yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned. Have you always worked in, in Madrid? Because I, I know you, you've had a, quite a few different roles over your time in the financial industry? No, in fact, I, um, I've only been in Madrid for about four years. Um, prior to that, uh, well, I, I did study my engineering degree in uh, bachelor's and master's in Madrid, but I, I did my master's in, uh, in Paris and in the US, in Colorado, uh, mineral economics. And, and after that, I, I, uh, my first job was in London, in the mid late nineties. Oh, nice! And yeah, I was there for uh, eleven years. Uh, met my wife, had my three kids there. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and then I I did spend some time in New York, and then uh, also in, in Singapore, uh, where I lived for for seven years before I I moved back to to Spain. So wow. I've had the chance to, to to get to get to know the world a little bit. Yeah, round, round the world trip. Yeah. <laughs> um. Now, something that's just happened recently that I thought I would like to get your insight on. Uh, the Fed, I believe yesterday, or maybe it was this morning, started to, they announced that they were going to start to unwind corporate bond holdings. Uh, bonds it purchased, they purchased last year to calm the credit markets, you know, during the, um, the COVID sort of problem. From your point of view, what's going to happen to markets off the back of this, if, if anything, or is it just a bit of news? Oh, look, I think the, uh, clearly the, the, the Federal Reserve and central banks on, around the world uh, have had a, a response without precedent, um, both in terms of uh, size, as well as uh, speed, as well as uh, scope. And uh, that, that included uh, buying uh, things other than, than government bonds. That uh, you know, fragility of the economy uh, and the recovery uh, which I would argue the problem was already pre-existent. So we had a pre-existent fragility that was then aggravated by, by COVID. Uh, basically, it's led to, to a situation where the, the central banks have erred on the side of uh, more uh, stimuli rather than, than less. And, and that has, uh, you know, as we get to see the vaccines being rolled out and, and, and some glimpses of, uh, you know, normalization, it's, uh, needed and, and, uh, and obvious that you should at least reduce the, the pace at which you are basically supporting the system. Um, tapering, as, as the listeners will now continue to buy, but at a, at a, at a slower, uh, slower pace. And, and uh, the opposite, i.e. continue at full pace as if we were in, a, in the middle of the crisis, I think it's harder to, to justify. So starting with the more extreme and, 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 and uh, basically uh, plans uh, make sense. 
And uh, yeah, you, you need to think about you know, to what extent the market was already somewhat saturated and, uh, and, and though it's, that support was perhaps uh, morphing into, into another problem. So what you originally intended to keep things afloat perhaps is, is uh, manifesting or creating uh, excesses in other, in other sides. And this is something that the Federal Reserve needs to, to balance. So it's inflationary risks, with potential bubbles, with support, yeah, and and those are things that come into question. So I, I think it's something that was to be expected. We'll see what the details mean, and uh, and and what the pace forward is. You know, to what extent, you know, that tapering goes from uh, a small reduction to a, a total uh, reduction or stop, and then after that, if and when you get to see interest rates, you know, going up. Which would be, again, uh, that that I think is more uh, is a bigger issue than the taper in itself. But based on previous reactions from the market and in, in previous taper uh, taper tantrums, uh, it's understandable that the central banks are going to be very very cautious. They don't want to upset the market. But, but yeah, judging by the price action this morning, it's 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 normal. It's uh, perhaps uh, the first indication of of more to come. Uh, but I, I would argue that it's, it's price dependent and path dependent. So if the uh, removal of, of these uh, stimuli gradually creates uh, a major response in the market, then uh, that may force the central banks to, to come back and, and put it again or, or not remove it on the first place. And that, I think, is a situation we're in. It's one mm-hmm. where we've, we've really blown these bubbles uh, to levels that are by now too big to fail, and the removal of the uh, the monetary and fiscal, uh, particularly the monetary, is is something that uh, could could uh, challenge these valuations and bring us back to the original problem. So it's not it's not an easy thing to navigate, and I think the central banks will be very cautious in in the communication and the pace and 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 the size uh, and, and the scope. But uh, it's it's something that was to, to be expected. Let's see how the market takes it. Got you. Okay. Now you're a macro investor. I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners just to, from your point of view, describe how macro investors view the world and how that impacts your sort of investment philosophy, etc. Sure. Look, uh, I think uh, macro is trading style, uh, more generally top down. Um, I would. I mean, obviously, within the macro community, there's lots of different players. I I would use the analogy of there are uh, players that are more poker players. So they are betting on shorter moves, the, the next pair of hands, and with bets that are, you know, a little bit more based on short-term uh, risk-reward and trading and positioning and technicals. And there's a large community of very successful uh, macro traders that operate on that basis, and they just want to know what the next move is going to be. Uh, I would argue there's another category of more chess players uh, where I would put myself into, which we are a little bit more medium long term. We are looking at imbalances. We're you know, so the, the way you express your views and you implement your views and you and you trade it has a, a different investment horizon. Um, and so, fr- from my perspective, I, I take a, if I was to look at what's happening, <clears throat> I'd like to summarize, you know, the last decade in in, in one line, which is the transformation of uh, risk-free interest into interest-free risk, and and that's really what's happened ever since 2008, and you know, the introduction of QE and monetary policies without limits and you know, immense liquidity and support. What is done is really transformed the the world from uh, you know once upon a time you know short term interest rates at five percent and moderate levels of inflation, which meant you know you could park your money risk free and earn some sort of real return. So not only you made your five percent, it was substantially higher than than inflation. To, to a world where no matter where you look, uh, mm-hmm. you know, nominal rates are substantially lower 
But when you think about uh, those returns by adjusted by inflation, uh, we are pretty much across the board in, in, in negative real yields. And this is a new paradigm that has quite deep implications. And as I was discussing earlier, I, I am a little bit concerned about the fragility of the system, the artificial setup caused by artificially low interest rates and what it means in terms of uh, risk and bubbles. And so I think we are in a situation where the artificial valuations, the bubbles, are by now too big to fail. They are potentially systemic. If the uh, support was to be removed or you know, the, this fragility to be exposed, we would see that the collapse of these uh, risk markets uh, could create a snowball effect, which uh, we, we've seen a glimpse of that in, in Q4 2018, when they had to intervene, intervene aggressively. We've seen, obviously, uh, a very uh, scary move during COVID. And I think this is not over. In fact, the, I would argue that we are doubled up on the, uh, in the position. And so from a macro perspective, you know, the, the central banks are in a situation where they are, uh, in some ways, I think we're entering into a new paradigm where these bubbles that are by now too big to fail are the new enemy. So, you know, historically, central banks based financial stability on inflation. And what we're seeing now is, is a change in the rules, the, the rules of the game. We have a situation where inflation is picking up. And I sincerely doubt that central banks will be able to respond by increasing interest rates, which is what the textbook tells us. It says, look, if uh, inflation goes up, interest rates go up. There's a big problem with that. And it's that if interest rates go up, the bubbles implode. And therefore, you're in a very difficult situation that will force you to bring interest rates lower. So why raise rates on the first place? So I think they're in a bit of a trap where we will see inflation increasing and real rates and yields deeply negative. Could be we're already in the minus two area, depending on where you are in the world, but it that's the official numbers. So uh, I think the real inflation numbers are way higher and they're going to get significantly deeper. And this has dramatic implications for, uh, for asset allocation. Uh, to start, there are certain parts of your portfolio that are going to suffer over the medium long term uh, in, in the form of major loss of purchase power. And that's cash, fixed income, and credit. Those are, those are assets that uh, you know, have different investment profiles, but they have in common that they're all uh, short inflation. And as inflation goes up, if you have a you know, corporate bond that, you know, you paid $100 or euros, uh, that it's going to pay you back, you know, those $100 or euros in 10, 20, 30 years, I don't think those $100 or euros are going to buy you much at all in, in, in 30 years. Yeah. So, so that's the, the big issue, you know, and this is kind of, this party, this uh, abuse, this bullying, uh, financial bullying by, by central banks, is this party is going to be paid by people who, uh, who, who have cash and credit and fixed income. The, the, uh, you know, the, the implications for assets like uh, equities or real assets or anti-bubbles like gold or, or others, I, I think it's much more constructive. You want to be in a world where Central banks and governments are trying to solve uh, every problem by printing money and increasing debt. I'm very skeptical of that. I, I, I challenge that. And that was, you know, when I wrote my The Anti-Bubbles, the book, I, I, that, that was the, the origin. It's like, are we really, a, are we really solving problems? So what's, what's happening here? And, and, and my conclusion is that, you know, we're not really solving problems. We are, uh, first of all, delaying them, kicking the can down the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the yeah. form of debt and passing from one generation to another. The second thing we're doing is we are transferring the problem. So in the form of currency wars and trade wars. So trying to, uh, you know, pass a beggar thy neighbor type of problem. The, the third thing that's happening is we're transforming the problems. And that transformation is largely into 
uh, inequality and inflation, uh, which creates a lot of social issues, and we've, we've seen that throughout history. And lastly, you're enlarging the problem, particularly with things like uh, bubbles, uh, uh, etc. So I think overall, this this setup is uh, is dangerous. We are, you know, there's a lot of complacency in the system. There's a lot of uh, a big belief, you know, in in uh, central banks and government can actually print and borrow their way out. And I think this is leading to a scenario where the world is becoming increasingly polarized. Uh, inflation is on the rise. And uh, I believe, unfortunately, that uh, uh, things either uh, will go into some sort of uh, spectacular blow up if you had a, a big shock and some of these artificial setup was exposed uh, and or you have a, a situation where we, we have stagflation. So, um, uh, which I think is the most likely outcome. I think the, the central banks will continue to provide uh, enormous support uh, in a preemptive basis, uh, trying to prevent the, the bubbles from imploding. And, mm. and, and, and that setup is not happening in, with, with uh, you know, a rosy economy. It's all a bit, of, a bit artificial. So um, yeah, there are uh, perhaps some reasons to be optimistic. Uh, I, 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 I'm a little bit more realistic, I think, with respect to the, the burden of the debt and, and the artificial setup. And why I think you you know investors should have caution, and when they think about portfolio construction, they should think in two dimensions. The first one is make sure that you have uh, uh, the, the right the right team. So you have a I use a, a soccer or football analogy. You, know, you need strikers, midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers. You can't just have uh, strikers. You know things that will score goals and and will do well when the world does well. You need also strategies like the ones I run that are more defensive in nature. So you need that sort of risk on risk off filter and ensure that you're diversified. And the second filter is, is inflation, which I think it's on the rise. Yeah. And so not not all strikers behave the same way. You know, uh, equities I think should and will do better than credit, and not all defenders. Uh, will will do the same way. I think uh, anti bubbles like gold or the VIX will uh, do better than fixed income, for example. So the, this is a fascinating time for macro. It has very deep implications for portfolio construction, and I think we need to watch carefully as as some of these risks m might be a lot greater than than we we believe or or, or appreciate. Yeah, interesting to see how macro is more important than ever, probably. At the moment, due to its yeah, like the implications we're talking about, it doesn't matter what asset you're in; that it's going to be um, the macro environment at the moment is going to have a big influence on it. Um, can you give us a quick uh, overview of what you do at, at Quadriga? Sure. Look, uh, Quadriga is uh, we're a 1.8 billion asset and wealth manager. We have overall as a firm, we also have a, a broker dealer, so we're about 90 people. And uh, what I do in particular is I, I run, I'm part of the asset and wealth management division, and I'm in charge of a number of teams and strategies. Uh, I run, we have two uh, types of solutions, uh, and we're very focused on opportunity and, and talent. So we have a number of people with a similar profile to, to mine, very international. Uh, for example, one of our new newest additions to the team is Christian Thum, who's a former colleague of mine at Goldman and Merrill Lynch, where he was head of prop trading in, in Europe. And, uh, and so he's come in with a, with a mandate on the equity long short, which is where he specializes. And, uh, and, and then people like me, I specialize in macro commodities, in volatility, in tail risk. And there are multiple other teams that operate, let's say, fully independently. What, what we do uh, as, as those teams and strategies we are following with the football analogy, we, we play different roles, different positions. So uh, myself, I happen to be the goalkeeper. I'm the, uh, the strategy that it's meant to do very well in a crisis. We were best hedge fund in the world in February last year, plus, plus 10. I don't know if there's 20,000 hedge funds or whatever, 10,000, we were number one, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, and then uh, we also did very well in March, plus 19.1. So throughout the crisis, 
we were one of the best hedge funds in the world. Not, not because we're very smart. It's because it's our job. It's our mandate. It's guys, you, we need you when, when things go wrong. And, and that's the strategy is, is designed to, to do that. So uh, that's based on the comparison thesis of, of the anti-bubbles. And, uh, and again, that's helped us gain a lot of uh, institutional and, and, and retail support throughout the world uh, with clients, uh, you know, big, big, big pensions, insurance, uh, family office, etc. Now, the second uh, yeah. thing that, that we do and that I do is, uh, you know, some investors, at the end of the day, we are uh, solution providers. Okay. Uh, this is, you know, uh, this is not the, the Diego show. I mean, this is the, the investor, the client show, right? So they, they are the ones who, when they have savings, they need to decide, you know, what They're, they are the, the coach. They're the, the, the person who decides, okay, how, how do I want my team to look like? Do I, do I, do I want more strikers, midfielders, defenders? How, how do I want to play? Do I want four, four, two? How do I want to be structured? The second decision they need to make is which uh, players will I, will I use for each position? In some cases, they may be coach and player. They might be investing their, their own money or at least a portion of that. And uh, so investors can delegate some functions, for example, goalkeeping to someone like, like myself. And then they, they rebalance the portfolio. They, they, they trade. One of the things we do is we, we've created uh, a solution, which is an entire team, uh, which uh, is composed of uh, our own strategies and also external strategies using uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, a very quantitative process with human intervention that basically looks to solve what I believe is the biggest opportunity and problem, uh, particularly in places like Europe, which is uh, what do I do with with my with my money with my cash with my with my fixed income right? Once upon a time, you could park your money and earn five percent without taking any risk, without uh, and 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 that investment in bonds or whatever would do well in a crisis, and uh, yeah. there wasn't an obvious risk of inflation. Things have changed a lot, and now if you're my mother, for example, uh, you know she goes to, to one of the local banks and they might offer her something that best case scenario is minus 0 0.25, okay? And that's just uh, uh, terrible because, you know, uh, th this is a situation where you, it's costing you money to keep uh, things there. It's obviously suffering from higher inflation. It's bullying people to take more risk to go into equities, which they may not want. I mean, they, my mom is in her late 70s. So, so effectively, the, the thing is, how do you create a team that will hopefully protect the capital, generate a stable income? We have a target of about 5% uh, above inflation. So how to protect against inflation? And to do that, uh, to build that, that portfolio, that solution, which is called the Quadriga Stable Return, uh, which we launched with a seeding from uh, one of our major investors, uh, you can't do it in the conventional way where we just say, well, I just put a bit of equity, a bit of credit, a bit of high yield. This wouldn't work because yeah. you're, you're subject to the risk of false diversification. You know, when the crisis comes, you know, many of these things get hit at exactly the same time. So one of the things we, we do, in my case, I, I'm, I'm the goalkeeper, but I also uh, help oversee uh, a team which, uh, of which I'm, I'm, I'm the goalkeeper and it combines all the pieces. And so this is a dual approach. It's a, uh, you know, individual strategies that people can, can invest in uh, by effectively outsourcing some portion of expertise, be it equity long short or volatility or gold or whatever. And then the other one is, is more like a holistic solution uh, where you can spark your money as a, as a fixed income replacement or cash replacement uh, hoping that we will be able to protect the capital and generate a stable income of, you know, above inflation, which is, you know, something that doesn't exist. And, and that's what we do. We've done it, uh, very successfully. The, the team, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's great fun. We have fantastic talent. 
and uh, we're very grateful that you know the support we're getting from uh, from uh, from all over the world, really. And you've released um, two very interesting books: "The Energy World Is Flat" and "The Anti Bubbles." Can we just um, dig into the first one? The energy world is is flat. Opportunities from the end of peak oil. What does the energy world is flat mean? Well, the the, the book uh, is inspired, uh, or it takes the title from uh, uh, Thomas Friedman's book uh, called "The World Is Flat," and this was a book published in the aftermath of the dot com. And uh, I, I remember I lived the dot com crisis in, in, in first person. And for those of us who, who lived through it, the word uh, dot com became it had a pretty bad name. I mean, everybody had a bit of a sour feeling. It's a bit like you know, I, I could fast forward and, and you know, in a few years, what does perhaps crypto sound like, or or I don't know, or CDOs, right? Who knows? Maybe they're great. Maybe <laughs> it'd be a bad word, right? But, uh, but the, the idea was that uh, in the energy book, uh, the, it was an interesting time. It was written in 2013-14. Oil was at 120, and there was a general understood uh, view that uh, of peak oil, the thesis of peak oil, which people thought oil would go to 200. And, and it was a bit of a, uh, this perspective, you know, very one-sided. The, the flattening of the energy world was arguing for uh, a transformation in, in two fronts. First was the uh, convergence across energies. So it's a bit of a, and the second was the convergence across regions. So it's a bit of a globalization of energy markets where historically energy markets were very siloed. So uh, you could be an expert in crude oil, but know nothing about coal or electricity or uh, whatever you want yeah uh, the, uh, the the idea is uh, you know throughout uh, and, and I, I I went through this flattener forces and that you know which which go all the way down from uh, technology you know through upstream downstream whatever many many forces at play that I consider to be flatteners that were effectively driving that process. And it, it became a book that uh, it, it, was, it was meant to be more of a, uh, almost like a, a framework of commodity uh, trading, all the forces at play. And the conclusion when I, I started the, the book was, was clear. By the time I finished writing it, it was even higher conviction. And, uh, and yeah, it, it resulted, you know, the thesis uh, has not only survived, it's actually been reinforced by the, the passage of time. And um, yeah, it's, it's a world, you know, one of my uh, lines of the book was, and the last yeah. barrel of oil will be worth zero, right? And, and at the time, people thought I was absolutely uh, crazy uh, because there was this perspective of Mad Max, you know, we're going to run out of oil and, and like uh, it's going to be worth infinity. Yeah. And it completely misses the point of, of technology and, and many other dynamics across the market. So as a framework, um, it's, uh, it's been used, in, it's now used in some yeah. universities as a textbook. And, and I learned a tremendous amount. I had a lot of fun. I co-wrote it with my good friend and best-selling author, Daniel Lacalle. And, um, and yeah, writing that book was, was really, really a lot of fun. And I, you know, but it, it, it touched on a, a very similar similar lessons learned with, with the, the world is flat, which I, I think are worth remembering uh, because uh, they're universal. And, and what happened then back in the, in the dot-com is we had uh, a, a game-changer technology. So everything starts with some sort of game-changer technology. In that case was internet and uh, broadband and things like that. Right. If anybody's old enough to remember the world pre-internet yeah. and pre-broadband, uh, you know, we still existed. Uh, it was just different, right? But uh, uh, so that the expectations built around the, the the new technology were phenomenal. So we saw uh, very high valuations and an incredible amount of money pouring into the markets, right? And everybody was doing that on the basis that they were kind of the only guys doing it. So oh my god. I'm going to earn, 
you know, five euros per mega uh, of, of data. And then we literally have the entire oceans wired with, with broadband, right? So the, the, the thing that happened is that we had a huge amount of overcapacity. So after a while, the market, yeah, the, the technology was, was amazing. The investment was huge. The overcapacity was there. And then what happened is mm-hmm. valuations collapsed. You know, once you, you had overcapacity, valuations collapsed. But that, that was the miracle. That, that's effectively what happened is you had this game changer technology in huge size for free because now all these investments were written off. And so the fascinating thing about the book that really resonated to me was how something that had left that sour feeling to, to many people, the dot-com, like, oh my God, the fiasco, actually the bubble, uh, what it did is accelerated the, yeah, the, the change. It accelerated the process because, because you have this huge investment and overcapacity, which meant suddenly that overnight, if you lived in India, you could then be uh, an accountant for someone in, in LA, right? Something that would have been unthinkable back, back in the day. And so that transformation, we had something very similar in the energy markets. We had um, Fukushima in, uh, happening at, at the time where we had, you know, uh, in nat gas in the US, uh, you know, horizontal drilling and, and, and fracking. And, and this created a very similar dynamic because we have effectively natural gas uh, available in, in, in huge volumes and, and low prices, about $2 in MBTU, so $12 barrel of oil equivalent uh, at the time in the US. And the shock of Fukushima, which uh, basically cut nuclear and forced people to uh, produce energy in whichever way they could, including gas, sent it to about $120 barrel equivalent. And so you have uh, effectively the same commodity, Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola, trading uh, t- 10 times higher in, in Japan than, than the US. And, and, and it's not a process that you could uh, arbitrage immediately because unlike Coca-Cola, which is easy to transport, uh, natural gas is not that easy to transport. It's, it's a gas and you need either the, the, the pipes, uh, which take a, a long time, or you needed the LNG fleets. And so what happened is this, this price signal, this bubble created this ginormous signal of investment which I, I, at the time of writing the book, I said, look, this is a little bit like the dot-com. I mean, you have a game-changer technology, this huge price signal, and we, we have this massive investment. So within the next three years, you're going to have a wall of supply, and then uh, price is going to collapse, and natural gas is going to be a global commodity. And guess what? As natural gas is a global commodity, you're going to be able to run buses on, on natural gas or trains, as Warren Buffett and others did, and, and we're going to have a competitor for crude oil, which effectively means that the monopoly is gone and you could see on the margin crude collapsing. And, and that sort of chess game that I played in, in my head uh, played out by, by the letter. Okay. It, it played out and many other factors kicked in. And so it was fascinating. And I, and writing the book was, was an incredible experience. And, and I encourage everybody listening to us that if they have uh, any interest, as Cicero would say, if you want to learn, teach, I would say, if you want to learn, write. And, uh, and that was fascinating, uh, a very exciting world, very closely linked to macro and inflation and others. And, uh, and yeah, something I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the work we did and the legacy you know, that is, is left with a number of concepts that are now widely used. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine these, these macro trends are sort of still playing out um, in the energy market. And is there any sort of uh, ways people can take advantage of these trends in the financial markets? Absolutely, they, they, they continue to happen. I think uh, one of the interesting you know, frontiers is, is renewals, right? I, yeah. we, we talked about that uh, in the book a lot. And, um, and you know, you, this, uh, as renewables kick in, I mean, th- I'll give you an example, for example, for, you know, for the sake of the argument. Um, can't remember the number exactly, but uh, obviously Saudi Arabia, uh, as a major oil producer, has been historically a major. Uh, I mean, they, they produce their energy producing by, by burning crude oil. That was just convenient, okay? And uh, they had a lot of it. They could burn it, and and they did it almost for for free for the for their for their population. They uh, subsidize it and, and whatever. So a significant amount of crude oil could be burned for power generation purposes. Now. The minute 
you can actually produce energy by using solar. You don't need to be a genius to realize that in the desert, there's plenty of, <laughs> of sun. Uh, the, whatever energy you produce using solar means you're freeing up uh, crude oil that could be used for other purposes. So mm-hmm. effectively, the development of solar energy in places like uh, Saudi Arabia becomes a flattener because it reduces the demand for crude and makes more crude available for other uses. Okay, and that's why it is it, sort of uh, you know it, it varies for crude oil prices. Now, th- what's happening today? I think the world is still you know even if the trend is very obvious in my opinion, which is you know uh, we, we, in crude oil in particular yep. we have the civil war between producers and technologies. You know, this is Canadian oil sands competing with uh, shale in the U.S. with uh, ultra deep and whatever. Uh, you also have a, uh, another war, which is the war uh, for transportation. So people, for the first time ever, you know, to, to a certain extent, crude oil, when people ask me, you know, uh, wh- why is OPEC being successful? There's a, a thought or a, a belief that OPEC was successful because they have an mm-hmm. oligopoly of supply. Okay, this, this sounds pretty obvious. I have the oil, I control the price. Yeah, I'm the big guy. Now, that's not necessarily true, or it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. And there's plenty of other markets where you might have a dominant position, but it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Um, and, and so the, the real reason why OPEC was successful was not so much the oligopoly of supply, it was the oligopoly or the monopoly of demand. And it's a monopoly of transportation demand. So for decades, we have been driving our cars with gasoline and diesel and our ships with uh, fuel oil and our planes with kerosene, all of which are crude products. So the success of crude, the, the, the big success of OPEC was driven by the relentless growth in transportation demand, not necessarily for OPEC uh, per se. And, and so some of these dynamics, uh, you know, which are play are being challenged because, you know, I myself, for example, we, we bought our first fully electric car earlier this year. Uh, and I, I, I can see the ginormous mm-hmm. advantages and there's certainly no, no turning back, I think, in many, many ways. Uh, and, and so crude oil has lost its, its monopoly as it used to be. And you have plenty of other uh, ways in which people can achieve their need. I mean, you, you need to remember some of the biggest blow-ups in corporate history have come because people believe that people need their product, you know, whether it's Nokia, believing that they need, or, or Kodak or others thinking people need my, my product. No, we need, we need a solution to a problem. And yeah. nobody needs crude oil. Nobody. Nobody needs crude oil per se. What we need is a way, you know, a cheap, abundant, reliable, clean way to transport ourselves from point A to B. We don't need crude oil, okay? However, many people believe that we need crude oil because they mix this, they somehow mix this view of I need crude oil with I need transportation. They're different things. And so some of the dynamics that are taking place are, uh, in my opinion, uh, flatteners that uh, effectively challenge this monopoly of crude oil on the transport, on the demand for uh, transportation demand and whilst there are other forces undeniable on, on, on the supply side, uh, which could counter uh, a little bit of this, I still think that the globalization, the flattening of the energy world is relentless and, and, and puts a little bit of a lid to how high crude prices could go in the medium longer term. But you know, in the short term, it's all, it's all noise. Uh, you know, but, but in the longer term, I think these dynamics and the marginal barrier is very real. And, and also when situation gets into some sort of crisis, that's often when you see some of these imbalances taking place. You know, the, 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 the people that are hoarding the, the, the producers that are kind of keeping the production away from the market artificially mm-hmm. uh, to keep prices high are the same guys that need the money the most in a crisis. And so you have this sort of short gamma scenario where as the market goes down, you know, at $50, I need 1 million barrels to earn 50 million. At 25, I need 2 million barrels. So uh, the lower the oil price, 
the more volume you need to produce to generate the same amount of money. And therefore, you get these dynamics when as, gold, as oil goes down, very often you see a significant amount of volume increase because the process reverses. So I, I think these trends are relevant, are important. Uh, it's good to have this big picture framework and then fine tune it with lots of the things you might be seeing you know, with respect to uh, you know, more micro dynamics. But I, I think the big trends are certainly still in, intact. Mm-hmm. And so renewables you'd see as replacing over time the need for oil, et cetera, as they gather steam and more electric cars are around, et cetera, like this? Yeah, the energy mix, you, you, you will have, um, you know, the, 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 what happens is the silos are broken. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, crude oil was just a silo. You know, you have zero horizontal uh, substitution with, with things like natural gas or, or others. I think the, the monopolies are being broken. The energy world is becoming more, more uh, flexible. You know, there's certainly no shortage of energy. And uh, it's not just fossil fuels. It's, I think renewables will continue to play a meaningful part. And that's good news overall in the sense that we will have you know, a more abundant, uh, reliable, uh, cleaner, cheaper energy as, as humans. Yeah. And that's, that's good news. So, but I, I think it's, it's all part of a mix. You will never see you know, one or the other completely disappear. And I think it's about the right balance. And, and that takes many, mm-hmm. many considerations. You know, if you're a government or a corporate to, to secure your en- energy needs uh, strategically at the same time trying to optimize for price, but energy security is such a big um, and important strategic question that it creates generally excess in the system in many forms, storage and others and production and whatever, that it's, uh, you know, it's actually bearish long-term because of the structural overcapacity you, you're willing to create because you, you don't want to rent, run things too tight and then be, be shocked and, and run out of yeah. Uh, energy as a, as a country or whatever. It's not something that is anybody wants to happen. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Now, I wanted to move on now to um, your most recent book, anti The Anti-Bubbles. Um, which is obviously re- incredibly relevant, and we touched on it already to, to what we're going through at the moment uh, in a macro level globally. W- what are anti-bubbles? So I'd like, I always like to start by explaining what a bubble is. And I borrow the definition from George Soros, or my interpretation of it, which is you know, assets that are artificially expensive and based on a belief that happens to be false what he calls a misconception. So bubbles are situations where the emperor had no clothes, okay? Things that are just artificially high. What, what, I, what I did as, a, as an engineer is I, I generalized the framework and I said, okay, uh, misconceptions can distort reality, but not only via artificially high valuations, which we call bubbles, you could also have artificially low uh, valuations, which is what I call an anti-bubble. And the concept has three dimensions. The first one is assets that are grossly artificially cheap. It's basically a, you know, a matter of when, not mm-hmm. if, that those valuations will, will go much higher. It's some sort of value. The second one is assets that, uh, by construction, bubbles and anti-bubbles are like two reflections of, of the same misconception. They're, they're the same process. So by construction, the moment the, the misconception is understood, is the moment the, the bubble will uh, implode and, 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 and the anti-bubble will go up, right? And so uh, this idea is that the anti-bubble is a bit like an antivirus or an anti-missile. It's a, it's a defense mechanism against the bubble. It's, it's, it's a hedge. And, and the third dimension relates to the fact that uh, there's an element of risk premia, you know, uh, being a contrarian. You know, sometimes bubbles are linked to consensus and excesses. And so in that sense, if you think, for example, at the relationship between the S&P and the VIX, I would argue that they follow a bubble-anti-bubble relationship where artificially low volatility feeds into artificially high equity valuations, both through qualitative 
and quantitative process. So qualitative, such as complacency or the perception of low risk, uh, or quantitative, such as you know autocorrelated processes with CTAs and uh, vault targeting or risk parity, which effectively tend to buy uh, the most at the top when volatility is low, and then they end up uh, being forced sellers as, as the markets go down and volatility picks up. So to be, there's an element of being a contrarian, an element of potentially getting paid, because what's ironic is that uh, financial insurance is cheapest when you need it the most. Okay, so the moment when equity valuations are at the highest tends to be the moment where, for example, implied volatility is at the lowest. And so if you think about that, uh, you, you need the insurance when equities are, are all-time highs. You know, uh, you don't need uh, the insurance so much when equities have already collapsed by whatever, 20, 30, 40%, right? So there's an yeah. element of contrarian. And, and, and this framework goes beyond the concept. I'm, I'm very honored and humbled that the, the concept has actually taken off um, it's been widely used by industry leaders and following from my contributions to the FT and Wall Street Journal, I think that the, the word is now being used uh, commonly. So my, my tiny contribution to, or one of them, to, to, the, to the finance community. Uh, but it's also a, a key ingredient of uh, understanding you know, artificial setups, such as the one where we are today. Uh, and, and all these things like Tina, and FOMO, like there's no alternative and fear of missing out. Yeah, you, you, you can take this view that, uh, you know, there are assets that uh, could potentially be part of a team and, uh, and, and provide this uh, more, more well-rounded uh, exposure where, you know, what, what I would define as strikers and, and goalkeepers. You know, I think the team is, is going to be more balanced. And, uh, and they offer tremendous opportunities. So uh, I think the framework on itself, which is very critical of, as we discussed at the earlier part of the conversation, you know, monetary and fiscal policies without limits and, and what it means and the consequences and et cetera, is I think a very useful framework to, to try to put some uh, sense into, in, into this new setup and, and new paradigm, which I, I think it's, um, it's, it's accelerating. Mm-hmm. And are there any anti-bubbles that you can see today that people could potentially take uh, advantage of? Sure. Look, I would say that uh, to, to some extent, if you want to look for a bubble or anti-bubble, what you need to do is you need to look for the misconception. So uh, personally, and uh, you know, I think, for example, gold is a textbook anti-bubble for the fiat currency, right? And I, to get uh, controversial here with many of your listeners, <laughs> I would argue that uh, cryptos are, you know, I, I wrote this lengthy article uh, with quite a deep analysis on, on, on the forces at play. And my, my conclusion was that Bitcoin was 80% bubble, uh, 20% anti-bubble. So, yeah. but this is, this is the result of just going one by one through the beliefs that people uh, use, okay, uh, you take every single argument uh, and we can go through it and, and determine whether, okay, this is a genuinely uh, true argument or whether uh, it's not. And, and, and so very often what you find that this, this happened with the, the energy book, right? Uh, uh, where, where we looked at this analysis and said, look, I think these are fallacies. Uh, I find just to, to give you one, uh, I mean, I, I think the VIX at 1617 and, and, and equities at all-time highs is clearly a bubble anti-bubble process. Unfortunately, it's pretty expensive to, to buy the, the, the VIX uh, in terms of carry. So if you, if you buy this thing, uh, holding it in the ETF is, is very expensive to hold and, and carry. Uh, lately, it's been about 10% negative carry per month. So it's, it's a brutal... Wow. Uh, source of wealth destruction. You know, you are in the trade five months early and you may have lost 50 plus percent of your money uh, without any move in the index, yeah. just by, by staying in there, which means that by the time the move happens in the VIX, you need to double your money just to break even. So it's extraordinarily difficult and expensive, uh, but it's clearly uh, one of the best uh, and most effective 
defenders you could have when when things go wrong, precisely because how difficult it is. There's a lot of people playing the other side. But but yeah, I think look, gold versus fiat currencies, uh, VIX versus S and P, and to some extent, I think also gold versus crypto. One of the fallacies that I have uh, you know challenged or or beliefs that I've challenged is is what I call the scarcity fallacy, right? And here people look at uh, Bitcoin and they say, well, there's only 21 million Bitcoins, therefore Bitcoins are scarce. And my argument is, yeah, there's only 21 million Bitcoins, but you can print 21 million cryptos out of thin air, right? Mm -hmm. So Dogecoin is a very good example. I mean, the enemy for Bitcoin hasn't come, it wasn't gold, it wasn't the dollar. The real enemy, in my opinion, is coming from within. It's, it's, It's other cryptos that actually show that there's no scarcity, okay? Absolutely zero scarcity. You can, uh, so people then would argue, well, Diego, fair enough. You could print other Googles or other Facebooks, right? Which leads to potentially first mover advantage, which is uh, fair enough, but I think they're comparing uh, uh, businesses with cash flows with, uh, with something that is not. It's something more like a, a piece of art or more subjective. But then they, there's more interesting models that are built, things like the network effect or Metcalfe's law that sound very uh, sophisticated and, and, and which when you actually understand what they, what they say and how they're used, I, I think the emperor has no clothes. I mean, network effect at the end of the day is the, is the equivalent of the economies of scale uh, applied to the demand side. So economies of scale, is, which is a supply side dynamics, is you know if you have a factory and you produce ten units and then you produce a thousand units, you know the margin cost of production of thousand units is generally lower because of economies of scale. So that's good. The the network effects is sort of telling you that on the demand side, the more demand that there is, the more you're willing to pay for it. Just kind of, and they use examples. Based on uh, you know the utility of uh, of of, uh, of a network, neural network or others, say for example, very often they use the telephone or the fax, saying, well, if we add more people to the telephone, then the utility increases, which is you know you can make so many more different calls. Now clearly, uh, Metcalfe's law says that the uh, utility of of the network increases proportionally to the to the square of the nodes, which is true, but then there's a major uh, disconnect because they're comparing utility with with price. I am not willing to pay exponentially more because there's more people connected to to the phone in in whatever, Mm -hmm. or the company is worth exponentially more. And so I I personally, you know, again, I I try to be as unbiased as, as possible. I start that article saying, look, like Frida Kahlo, I don't want you to think like myself. I want you to think, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and that's what and that's what I try to do. And so I, uh, people are free to look look it up in LinkedIn uh, under my name Diego Perilla, double R double L, and happy to you know to, to get the feedback. But there are really many many things that when you scratch a little bit through the beliefs and misconceptions, you 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 find that perhaps uh again the emperor has no yeah. clothes but that, that's i think uh part of the framework is, is look for the misconception if you find the misconception then you will see things that are artificially expensive and artificially cheap and and perhaps opportunities to to find value mm-hmm. now in terms of stocks um and stock bubbles you mentioned using the vix as a as a hedge against um bubbles in the stock market can you describe the hidden risks of, of, of volatility? Sure. Look, uh, this is super important. Um, uh, volatility being one of the key anti-bubbles in the system. Um, I use the analogy of driving a car at you know, 200 miles an hour when the speedometer reads 80. Okay. If, uh, God forbid, you had an accident and you crashed, what do you feel? And the answer is you will feel the real speed you were running regardless of what the speedometer says. Okay. Now the market is a bit the same. Okay. Volatility is a, li- a little bit like the speedometer of the markets. You could be long Apple and Apple is plus minus 1% every day. 
and you're like, okay, how bad can this be? And then it turns out that one day, who knows, it loses 50%. Okay. Everybody will say, Diego, that's impossible. It would never happen. It's like, okay, fair enough. Who knows? But my point is the, the real risk you're running is the real risk you're running. Example is, and, and no, nobody really knows. We can uh, get a sense of what that risk looks like by looking at realized volatility or implied volatility. But what happens when volatility spikes is, you know, a lot of that complacency uh, basically shows up. So as, as volatility increases, then your value at risk increases. And uh, by construction, all investors tend to reduce risk. Okay, it, you could lose way more money than you thought. You're kind of breaking your car. And as volatility increases, and you're, you know, through value at risk or whatever, and you are in crowded uh, positions, and everybody's trying to get out at the same time, then this, uh, first of all, reduces the liquidity of the market, it becomes a little bit one-sided. You don't have the ability to sell the amount you want at the price you want, the time you want. And this creates, uh, this feeds into, uh, you know, uh, correlation. So everybody has the same trade. And then what you thought you were uh, diversified because, uh, but when the crisis comes, uh, correlations go to plus one or minus one. So it turns out that when you see the increase in volatility, the some degree of forced liquidation, the lower liquidity, the, that feeds into higher correlations, which in turn feeds into higher VAR, into higher liquidation, creates this very mechanical process where suddenly, uh, you know, this thing implodes. And, and the market, I use the analogy of fluid mechanics. You know, we, we, we tend to simplify the world between laminar regime and turbulent regime. And laminar regime is a linear world, predictable world, where things op operate the way we expect. A turbulent world is very chaotic, and and once volatility explodes, you know you have the VIX of about forty, you enter this very very mechanical uh, mega stop loss process that creates this forced liquidation that feeds on itself, and it, it becomes a snowball effect that is very very difficult to stop. Mm -hmm. And this is why central banks are so aware of it and scared. See what happened in in October December two thousand eighteen that they have to, and they have been preemptively trying to prevent those moves from happening. And so they are now obsessed with not upsetting the market because they know that if you have these big moves and the volatility breaks through certain levels, that will have a, a trickle-down effect whereby uh, this forced liquidation feeds on itself, accelerates, and, and, and then it becomes really difficult to stop because it... it, it so that, that is something that I point out uh, is super uh, relevant. And I think the, the dangers of complacency are, you know, you, you, you think the market is, uh, is very stable. Things are not really happening. You think you're diversified. So uh, the, the, the hidden leverage is risk that you're not aware of. If you're buying, uh, you know, oil futures leverage 10 to 1, there's nothing hidden about that. You're just taking a massive punt and you will blow up if this thing goes 10% mm -hmm. or less in your, against you. There's nothing hidden. The hidden risk is one that you're not even aware of. And these are things that happen because, you know, volatility was artificially low, liquidity, correlations were artificially low. And, and, and during crisis, all these things uh, move into the same direction. They compound into each other. And they result in, in major, major losses. So that, that's why I think awareness and understanding and being able to, to run uh, scenarios and, and, and knowing you know, that these things can and, and, and will happen mm -hmm. again. Uh, so that, that's super important and is a very clear uh, you know, corollary from the thesis. Now, as a, as a final question, um, I just wanted to quickly ask um, about a tweet I saw on your Twitter account, which was, was really interesting. Uh, about how someone might approach bubbles and anti-bubbles with an options strategy and avoiding leverage long shorts. Could you quickly summarize that? Or Sure. Look, I think one of the enemies I find is leverage. Leverage is the, the highway to bankruptcy, Okay, you are, whether it's explicit or hidden. And so 
one of the, I, I'm an expert in, in options trading and volatility and correlation. And, and um, one of the things I, 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 I say always is it's much easier and much safer to buy options. Because when you buy, uh, if, if you want to bet, uh, you know, uh, let's say uh, equities lower or, or uh, gold higher or whatever, you could do it in multiple ways. Obviously, a delta one uh, a position where it's long or short. If, if you're long, fine. You can only lose theoretically all the way down to zero. You have more upside if you're short. It's the other way around. But when you buy the options and you spend the premium, uh, you have 100% certainty of what your worst case scenario is. And and let's think, for example, at, at Tesla. Right. Let's assume for a second that Tesla is, is a bubble, and 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 you identify the bubble early, so two years ago, um, and, and you decided to, to, to bet against the bubble. If you had uh, gone outright short, you would probably be reasonably, I mean, bankrupt by now, right? Uh, or, or, or in very severe damage because this thing went up, whatever, 10 times or, or more. So, uh, you know, you risk X and lost uh, 10X. If you had bought options, even if they looked expensive at the time, uh, with 100% certainty, you could have only lost the premium. And in fact, maybe you bought puts at 100, and then at 200, and then at 500, and then at 1,000. You know, you've been spending some premium. It's painful, but perhaps eventually those those puts, you know, that, that move from 1,000 to 500 takes place, and you make everything back. So you, you need to be playing for the long term. You need to be patient, and uh, and it's extraordinarily difficult. But at least you know that you, you can survive, you know, your downside, et cetera. Um, a, a common mistake that people do is, oh, these options are too expensive. I'm going to finance them by selling calls. And you're not financing anything. You're long puts, you're short calls. And if this thing blows up, then, then you're in trouble. And so uh, my point was, uh, the, the first point I've been making all the time, and this has been particularly focused on crypto, amongst others, but it, it, the application is really across any single asset, whether you're long or short, is mind your leverage because of, of the hidden leverage we discussed earlier. And, and to the extent that you, know, you can express those views with options, then if implied volatility is artificially low, happy days, no brainer. Okay, Why would you ever think about going long or short outright if you can buy a cheap vanilla option? The challenge often comes from the fact that this Options are not that cheap, uh, and that creates this this bigger issue and this negative carry, and and this is why we do what we do. We are we specialize in this. It's extraordinarily difficult to be a, a goalkeeper yep. uh, in this market, and and you need to balance a lot of things. You need to balance you know your, your drawdown, your carry, your 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 downside, versus uh, hopefully delivering when the team needs it. And, and, and this is a team effort. You, know, you, you, you can judge the, the performance of, of the players individually, but ultimately it's not just what, how they do on an individual basis. It's, it's how they contribute also to the team. Right? If uh, Lionel Messi, for the sake of argument, was the best football player in the world, which I think he is, uh, you could theoretically say, well, then a team with 11 Lionel Messis will be the best team in the world. And that would be very, very far from the truth, okay? So in that sense, we all know that a team with a, a best goalkeeper and strong defenders and midfielders will be better. So you, you need, you, you, it's not about the players, it's about the team and, and, and that team will, will have parts of the team that are positive carry, others that are negative carry, some are risk on, some are risk off, some are long inflation, whatever. The, the, the ultimate goal is that your team performs in line with your objectives and to do that, uh, again, what we do with artificial intelligence and other things is to, to try to, to, to create a team that will do what, what we want to do uh, rather than hoping. <laughs> uh, but, but still, it's, 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 there's a lot of science, there's a lot of art, and, uh, and yeah, that, that's uh, something to, to consider. Yeah. Well, Diego, thanks so much um, for the time and, and it, lots of insights there that I'm sure people are going to really. Uh, make use of is there somewhere that people can go to find out more about the books we talked about and also 
any sort of um, commentary you have in the markets, keep up to date on your insights? Sure. Look, uh, I'm, we are quite transparent. Uh, I'm, I think if people are interested in learning more, they can uh, follow me on, on Twitter. Um, I also recommend that they you know, contact me in, in LinkedIn. It's uh, Diego Parrilla, C-A-R-R-I-L-L. And, uh, and yeah, I think uh, we, we have a distribution list. We do monthly calls, which we uh, do openly with our investors and where we share our views, etc. So I think uh, for us, education and, and, and sharing the framework is, is very important. And as I said at the beginning, this is, uh, we're just one, one piece of the puzzle. We hope to contribute to the uh, investors' portfolios uh, either you know through pieces that are, will add value or, or 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 by delegating the entire team, uh, but yeah, I, I'll be happy to connect and uh, and, and hopefully uh, add a little bit of value to to people's knowledge and understanding and their results, which is also uh, at the end of the day what matters. Yeah, cheers, Diego, and um, again, thanks very much, and I hope to have the opportunity to speak to you again. It's been my absolute pleasure, Ed. Thank you so much and uh, much help to everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.